0: I'd like to introduce Evan Williams. He is our second speaker of the year and the CEO and founder of Odeo. So just to get us all on the same page, maybe you could tell us a little bit, give us a quick tutorial about podcasts.
1: Okay, Uh, Podcasts are essentially audio recordings that are distributed through the web. And um, the name comes from the idea that they're put on the web Wrapped it in an RSS feed and then subscribe to, and ultimately they end up on your iPod. Or such MP3 player type device. Um, and that's started pretty much a year ago, um, but in that time it's, it's evolving very quickly. There's Apple's obviously involved now, and Yahoo, and a bunch of other people. And so that's the most generic definition, but I think it's going to change pretty quickly.
0: So why is it so exciting? Everybody is jumping in the game.
1: Yeah, it's kind of annoying that way. (laughs) Um, I think it's exciting for a few different reasons. I mean, there's, I use the phrase, the webification of audio, is how I like to describe what's happening with podcasting. And audio has been on the web for lots of years, obviously. I remember in 1996 hearing real audio over the web in a really, as every few seconds after it would buffer you'd hear something and it was a pretty amazing experience. Um, and then streaming actually, streaming radio has a surprisingly large audience, but it wasn't really a mind-blowing, compelling experience for a long time. And right now what's happening is sort of several key pieces of, of infrastructure and um, expectations, I guess, got, came into place that made the idea really take off. And those pieces were uh, broadband, being extremely widespread so the idea that you could actually download a high fidelity version of audio instead of just streaming it made the experience much better when you're listening um, and then obviously with the digital devices, notably the iPod that millions of people are carrying around and the fact they're hooking these to their computers and you could take this audio and then put it in, on your device and listen to it wherever you want um, kind of made the idea obvious to a lot of people and then suddenly the, a similar thing happened um, to what was, is more or less radio content that, that happened to print in the early days of the web. Everyone suddenly saw, well, the web is this incredible new distribution vehicle for all this stuff we're publishing. And so that enables lots of things. It enables um, an explosion of new content, and that's particularly interesting with audio because um, when you're talking, in, we say audio generically, but um, the most interesting stuff in a lot of podcasting is the non-music stuff because music... Distribution has evolved quite a bit, but the radio-type stuff, talk radio or spoken word audio, which can be cover a huge variety of topics, has always been pretty limited in its just distribution options. So, on your talk radio dial, you have very few options for what you can listen to, and um, so now you have a web's worth of options of what you can listen to, and. That's pretty interesting. And then the fact that you can listen to it whenever you want, and the puts, like the web did, puts the information consumer completely in control, is pretty interesting. And then the third promise that obviously was part of the web as well is that anyone can be, now be a creator of this content, not just a consumer.
0: Very interesting. Clearly, this is the early stage of this technology, and I'm sure you look to the future and wonder where this is going. What where is mm-hmm. what would be your vision of what's what are we going to see happening over the next few years?
1: So, I think there is a whole another wave to come. And right now, what we're seeing is is really uh, the 1.0, if you will, of podcasting, which is similar to the 1.0 of the web. It is mostly as this awesome new distribution vehicle. But the paradigm is still very similar to radio. Most of your description of podcasting, like mine just now, use the term radio um, because that's well understood as far as what is recorded and and uh, uh, distributed via audio. But uh, and that was similar to the web and everything on print moved to the web. Potentially had a greater audience, was more immediately accessible, was cheaper. But then um, things like blogs came around. When they did was um, really the web coming into its own. And the other stuff didn't go away. There's still New York Times and newspapers and magazines and everything that was in print on the web, but what blogs introduced was a form of publishing that didn't exist in print and took advantage of the intrinsic qualities of the web, the idea that you could publish several times a day because it didn't cost you anything and it didn't uh, cut down any trees, the idea that you could take advantage of the hyperlink and add value and context and make it, you could make it more interactive and two-way with comments and... Um, refer logs and you have this distributed conversation was a whole new type of publishing. One that really made sense for an individual to do as well as a corporation and it was just a native form of web publishing. So for podcasting, we we haven't seen that yet. We're sort of in the pre-GeoCities phase of podcasting where it's not even, GeoCities made it easy for anyone to literally put up a web page but there wasn't until blogs and some other tools there weren't It wasn't clear why you'd do so or how to do so on an ongoing basis. So with podcasting, I think there's that same potential where it's going to evolve to a much more common, everyday type use that's not seen as producing a radio program. Uh, Those things will still exist and people will download their NPR, but beside it, they'll have messages from their friends and um, group conversations or a million different things that we don't even know about yet.
0: So there's also a really Interesting competitive landscape that's evolving. You know, every day you pick Mm -hmm. up the newspaper and see another organization like Yahoo this week Mm -hmm. uh, getting into the game. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could tell us a little bit how you view the competitive landscape right now.
1: Uh, Sure, it's it's tricky. I mean, if we certainly didn't necessarily expect when we started thinking about podcasting a year or so ago, before we actually heard the term, my co-founder was doing had a service called Audio Blogger, and I did a deal with Tim when I was at Google to let people publish audio to their blogs. Uh, and then we kind of stumbled across a similar idea, like lots of other people did, of letting you download it to your device. We didn't necessarily anticipate that it would be one of the fastest growing spaces, in, even by internet time, and in that big companies like Apple and Yahoo and AOL were going to get into it within the next year. And that's, that's actually kind of unheard of from concept to the big players in the game. Yeah. Uh, but and and on the one hand, that's obviously a little bit scary because we thought, well, we're going to solve these problems and be a leader in the space because we're small and startup and focused. Uh, on the other hand, with any emerging market, at, at first, it's a lot of it's about growing the pie and bringing more people into the fold. And it's if I were to compare it to to blogging again, for years we were trying to explain what it was and defend its legitimacy. And with podcasting, suddenly those guys are out there educating the market and getting all the big players in and getting millions of people accepting this form of media, uh, then arguably it's a lot easier to build on top of that and, and to do the really interesting things if you aren't, aren't fighting the, the fundamental education battles.
0: So do you view them as competitors or collaborators?
1: A little bit of Wolf. I, I think um, they're obviously competitors to a certain extent. I mean, depends on who they are and there's lots and lots of people in the space but the big guys Apple and Yahoo now. Um, on the face of it th- they're competitive and we offer similar services. Um, we also haven't yet launched fully the, the version of our service that is more unique and they're not doing and I think is going to be more our key which is the creation of audio. Um, and But Apple has also made, it, made our job easier because at first we had this client program. You had to download audio to your machine. You have to first install something before you really got the full benefits of our service. And now you can use iTunes, and they work together. So it's, it's not a clear line, but I think all, uh, long-term, it's going to be more, do more good than harm.
0: Fabulous. So you referred before to being at Google, and I know you have a very exciting... Uh, past as a serial entrepreneur. Maybe you could just tell your story briefly because I think everyone here will be fascinated at how, uh, well why a guy like you decided to leave Google, but what were you doing beforehand?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, sure, I have started a few companies. I, uh, the the first was when I was about 20 and it was in Nebraska and um, actually had a spin-off of that company. It was an internet company. So I had an internet company in late 93, early 94 through 96 in Nebraska, which um, was the right time but the wrong place. And <laughs> I was I was pretty much spent a lot of time, I was trying to raise money and explaining what the internet was, was step one. Again, it's about educating the, the market and uh, that was really difficult but um, also highly educational. That was basically my, my education and did absolutely everything wrong and learned a lot and then finally made it out to California. Those companies didn't really go anywhere. I shut them down basically in 96, did some web internet consulting, whatever, and then came out to California in 97, uh, worked for O'Reilly Media, which was then O'Reilly and Associates, the book and web and conference uh, publishers, and that was very brief. Didn't, didn't find it very um, palatable working for other people, so I, uh, I I did mostly independent contracting for a year and a half, building web applications, and knowing I was going to start another company, and at the end of that time, started a company early 99 called Pyro Labs, and wasn't the purpose of the company, but we ended up building a tool called Blogger, which we launched in January 99, or sorry, August 99, and um, it was one of the first easy web logging tools, and um, sold that to Google then in February 2003.
0: How long were you at Google? I
1: was at Google in, uh, for a year and eight months. And basically, was an engineering and product manager there running, running Blogger.
0: It's interesting. I think I knows, heard some statistics that when someone sells their company to a bigger company, it's usually they last about nine months. So you lasted <laughs> longer than, uh, than most.
1: That sounds about right. I mean, it's a really hard thing to do, um, certainly some people I know who have sold their companies to Google, in in any case, have enjoyed staying there, Um, but it's certainly a different personality that then builds a company, and then, even if they're not a different personality to start with, by the time they've built their own company and had the level of success where they've actually sold it, then being part of merging into someone else's uh, culture can be a really challenging thing. Um, I had never been particularly good at, at lining up to someone else's organization, um, but I also went into it exp- knowing that I was going to learn a tremendous amount from Google and uh, be able to operate at a higher level when I, when I got out of there. So I wanted to get as much of that as I could.
0: So obviously Google is a very fast-paced, high-growth uh, entrepreneurial organization, as so is your company. How different is it being in a really small startup as opposed to a big startup? <sighs>
1: well uh if pay for your own food um, the uh take out the trash um it's it for me it's not tremendously different i mean it's um it's a very different experience of course, founding a company and working in a company, so there's that difference as well as the difference of, of size um and at any company there's lots of different experiences. So there are certainly small entrepreneurial teams at Google and, and other companies that feel a lot like startups. Um, even when I was at O'Reilly, I worked in their software group that was almost a, a startup, it's like a 25-person startup within O'Reilly and had very little to do with what the rest of the company did. Uh, so It's not necessarily that much different, but founding a company is certainly a world of difference than going into a, a company with all kinds of resources and you don't have to worry about so many things that are just annoying things that you don't want to think about and when you start a company you don't think about you want to build a product or you have a great business model idea or something and you have to figure out um, what are the uh, you know what are you going to do for health insurance
0: so if you look around this room I'm going to guess that a very large percentage of these folks here are um, aspiring entrepreneurs and if you were their age and sitting in their seats what advice do you wish you had had?
1: Um, well, I, I never had a, any trouble taking risks. That wasn't a, a particular problem I had. Um, I was always hallucinogenically optimistic about my own abilities. Um, so, it's a very tough line to toe. And in some cases, well, I should have been more realistic, but then I may be wouldn't have Started or tried a lot of things I tried and granted a lot of them failed so maybe I shouldn't have but they were crucial you know for the ultimate path. So I would say definitely try things but um, start small and think big. So one, one thing that I realized in looking back a lot of things I've tried is I didn't have enough focus essentially and um, you can do lots and lots of things if you do one, I think you and I were talking about this, do, doing more, um, one at a time is the easiest way to do lots and lots of things. And I still have that problem today. I think we started out with my current company trying to do too many things. And you just get this idea that you can do all these things. And you kind of forget, especially with the web and if you're an internet company, there are so many people in the world. Like Solving a very tiny problem can actually turn into a really big company. And if you solve a really small problem which is obviously much easier and you can do much faster, then you can always build off of that. Uh, so that's a big thing that I see time and time again that people are trying to solve too many problems. i say, you know, start with a very small one and start with something that you care about, that you want to exist in the world. Um, and that was the only types of companies or products that I could ever get excited about and really put my heart into and make successful were things that I had a real need for. I thought I wanted to be a user of the product, uh, and that has its limits. If you want to have millions of users and you're technically savvy, then you have to kind of temper that. But at least you want something you want to exist in the world um, as as a a user, not just oh, I think there's a big market here. One thing that happened, I mean, blogger had its ups and downs. One thing that happened in late 2000 when we and lots of the dot coms were running out of money was there was a very common scenario where consumer-facing companies, web companies, would decide their enterprise-facing web companies, and we had serious debates about that internally, and everyone thought, well, that's where the money is. There's no money in consumer, and um, that's how we can save the company, and I always thought, well, but that's not what we want to create in the world. So that may or may not be a way to save the company, but... Um, even if it was, we're not going to be good at it because we don't really care about it and we don't understand it. So let's stick with the thing we care about and understand. And ultimately, uh, fortunately, I, I was CEO, so I prevailed in that decision and it <laughs> turned out to be, to work out.
0: That's great. Now, you referred before to the fact that you've got to take a lot of risks, but the flip side of that is you're going to have some stumbling and some failures along the way. Sure. Would you be willing to share with this very intimate group some of your biggest failures? And what you learned from them?
1: Oh, there's so many. You guys many. won't
0: tell, right? No. <laughs>
1: um, biggest failures? Well, I mean, my first company actually started with my father, and that was a disaster from day one. Uh, it, it, and we did so many things wrong, and he'd never really worked. He was a farmer, actually. Um, and we were uh, A publishing company that turned into an internet company and I had never worked in a company so uh, we had no no models for really even how things got done and um, I mean one of the biggest I guess it's more of a symptom than a specific failure but the cause many many problems was just a lack of defining the roles about who did what and that's something I've, I've repeated several times. And when you have co-founders and it's not, if you don't have the classic, uh, she's the, the engineer and he's the business guy or whatever it is, then there's, a, often you want to start things with people a lot like you. And then you find, you overlap a lot. And then you're unclear about who does what. And at first it's fine because you're both doing everything and collaborating and as you start to get people and you start to need to be more efficient and be focusing on things um, it gets really messy so I've certainly done that.
0: So is that sort of the team building understanding how to put together the right team at the beginning? It's,
1: it's not just putting together right even with the people you have like you can have a great person but it's about actually taking the time to say you're in charge of this this and this and I'm in charge of this and of course we'll collaborate about big decisions or you know, pull each other in but even if you have the exact same skill set, you need to say who's in charge of what. If there's more than one founder, not a clear hierarchy about who's in charge. Um, that's, that's a big one.
0: So at Odeo now...
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You've now jumped ahead. That was your first experience. This is your most recent one. And yes. you have a lot of experiences under your belt. What do you see as the biggest challenges now? Is it internal? Is it uh, you know, organizational? Is it structural? Is it technology? Is it the market? You know, where are For the my current company? Yeah, current company. Where do you see the biggest challenges?
1: Um, it's interesting. I think one of the biggest challenges, if, if not the biggest, is maintaining focus. And again with the focus issue, which was certainly a problem early on for me, but now I have to be much more disciplined because a lot of the diversions come externally. They're not just me saying, oh, I shouldn't look shiny thing. It's it's other people and it's opportunities. And now that I have enough connections, enough visibility to be to get access to lots of opportunities, presents the new problem of having to choose. And having to choose really great opportunities that you don't follow is really hard. And it relates also to us starting out trying to do too many things because we thought, well, we can create, uh, you know, we can solve all these problems because no one else is doing it. And that was sort of a symptom of the market moving extremely fast. But even if we wanted to do all those things, we should have done fewer. And so we actually, there's a uh, front page business section story in New York Times when we announced the company and we weren't launching a product and that just caused tons of distraction and distraction from very interesting people. NPR was calling us and VCs were calling us and CNN was calling us and it's really hard to say no, say no to those people and yet if I answered all those calls and then we never would have got any product built.
0: Interesting. Well, I want to make sure. I remember last week the audience was filled with so many exciting questions. I certainly don't want to dominate uh, all the question asking. So let me open it up to all of you and uh, see what questions you have for Evan. So, who's got a question? Nobody has Nobody a question. Has there we go. <laughs> yeah, please. Hi, Michelle.
1: Sure, um, so the way I see it, the, the thing that made web publishing be a mass uh, everyday regular person phenomenon was moving from this idea that we're publishing and creating content to uh, really enabling communication and personal expression. and. It's not an either or. I see as there's a continuum of sort of on the web, content to communication, and uh, in podcasting, maybe broadcast to communication. But uh, the same forms, the same mechanisms are used on on the web and with these different technologies to do very different things. So um, one of the things that it, at first, when blogs were being talked about quite a bit in early 2000, we're still defending the concept that a regular person should be even be publishing. It was like the gall to think that people would care and they have something to say that the world would tune into. And some people still have that perspective, but I think it's much more accepted now that if that having a place that you you publish um, and and it may be read by 10 people and it's just your ideas or you're communicating with a very specific group or you're just saying what's on your mind is a much more accepted idea now because it's kind of gotten away from that idea that you're publishing and you're trying to compete with Time Warner. And with podcasting, I don't think we're there yet, but I think we will be. So we need to get past this idea that uh, you're creating a radio show because that's very intimidating. And sure, there's lots of people in the world who want to be the next Howard Stern, but not nearly as many as there are people who want to communicate with their family and maybe send short little messages or to a defined group or it could be a hundred people but get away from the idea that you're producing some content or broadcasting uh, so imagine lots of different scenarios like that almost blur the lines between podcasting and, and voicemail think about um, if in the future lots of people are enabling talking about moving podcasts to your phone um, and you could also imagine um, getting a message and it's maybe only two minutes long. And a lot of podcasts are a half hour long or an hour long. Um, and if you're downloading them, transferring to your iPod and whatever, then and selecting them to play, then there's a certain format length that makes sense. And maybe a two-minute thing doesn't make sense. But if you're getting it on your phone and you see it there, then it may make sense, but that two-minute message could be from ESPN about it's the latest Tour de France update, because you're following that and you get it throughout the day, or it could be a message from your friend to three other friends, and it's almost very similar to voicemail. And so there's lots of different scenarios like that, or could, you could have a private channel and um, you're communicating with your company, or your your startup, or... You could be just recording the PTA meeting and putting it out there publicly, but for a very defined group of people who are interested, and, and it's just a recording of a communication that enables just more people to get this information. Uh, so part of that's about expectations, about what you're actually doing, and part of it's about enabling the tools that make it so easy that it's <laughs> worth doing in a casual way.
0: Interesting. Another question. Yes, back there.
1: Uh, good question. We uh, right now we're focused on on building a user base. And we think there's going to be a lot of value in that. It's not blind. Let's collect all the users we can and, and sell. We think there's many options. Um, and a lot of people are talking about the advertising model for podcasting, uh, which if you have the radio paradigm makes a lot of sense. The U.S. radio markets twenty billion dollars and um, reportedly. Those guys are, are pretty desperate and losing their audience as everyone's carrying around iPods and um, losing the demographics that they're, they're interested in. Uh, and that's only in the US, and obviously it's a worldwide thing. Um, I, I think there's going to be an interesting market for premium content uh, that doesn't necessarily exist today. So you have audiobooks, audible.com, that takes books and turns in a podcast and, you know, more and more other stuff, but I think there's an interesting tier that would be self-service kind of premium content. It could be an expert who's an author or a speaker or um, just has an opinion on certain things and maybe has already a built-in audience. Um, so I think people will pay for certain content. Our model um, could be a combination of those, and it, I think on the, on the publishing side, which is the new tools we're about to release... Uh, fits very well with the subscription model where um, the same type of thing that people pay for already a lot on the web is um, when you're talking about communication and personal expression, people pay and that's what the cell phone market is basically both both the, your your monthly bill and people's ringtones are mostly about communication and personal expression. That's something that people traditionally pay for um, especially younger demographics more than content. Uh, so there's a lot of ways we could grow the service if we're enabling that to whether it's more to more powerfully communicate and express yourself so i like the subscription business but we don't have any thing in place right now Uh, Good question. Timely question, being Apple just released the video iPod today. Um, I I think video is interesting, and a lot of the same things are going to happen to video. There's going to be a webification of video, as there is with audio. Um, Certainly, the future where all video is on demand and um, comes over IP is is coming, so you have I, the way I look at video is like different mediums, Is kind of like the web is the most evolved medium and if you use an RSS aggregator you kind of get a picture of with the same mechanisms you're reading CNN and your friend's blog that's published to 10 people and that's the right mix of content for everybody and they pick the little things and there's a few big things and in front of my TV in the future I expect to sit down and there's a menu of options and there's uh, there's The Amazing Race, and there's a video um, of my nephew's first steps. And so those are sort of the 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 trends that I think are inevitable and going to affect video like they affected the web and are affecting audio. Portable video, to me, is slightly less interesting. It doesn't have a lot of the advantages that I'm excited about audio for. And part of why I got really excited about podcasting was it's... A, been a really underserved medium, um, audio, and there's just been a dearth of options of what you could listen to at any given time. Um, if you're talking information-based content, it was inconvenient, even audiobooks inconvenient, um, somewhat expensive, and even compared to print, before the web, you could go to your newsstand and get hundreds of options, and you can't get that for audio, and yet audio is arguably the most ubiquitous medium because you're already pretty saturated in front of your computer and in front of your TV. And um, when you're driving around, working out, walking down the street, audio is the only type of media you can consume, for the most part, at least safely. And uh, so the video iPod actually kind of worries me in that respect. You know people are going to be driving down the road with that. Uh, so it's, I think it's not quite as exciting, but definitely it's going to be a big thing.
0: Another question? When back?
1: Uh, that's a really good question um, I probably don't have tremendous insight to that because there are certainly the it's, it's sort of a cliche that the entrepreneur doesn't isn't the same person who can really scale something and isn't the same person who can happily work in a, in a bigger company um, but then on the, on the scaling side there's obviously the examples of Bill Gates and Michael Dell and um, Larry and Sergey um, and obviously those type of people exist. And in, in their cases, maybe it was they hit on something and did lots of really right things that created a, a massive company and they didn't want to leave it because it was fun and exciting. And, um, uh, and then there's other cases where, where the founder basically needs to be replaced by more of a professional manager who, who takes the company to the next level. Uh, so... I think it is sort of a a personality thing, but I don't buy into very many specific buckets of personalities, and I'm sure you can find analysis. There's this type of entrepreneur, this type, and this type. Um, I would like to think that I have the ability to build a big company and and scale it. Um, That's not proven yet. Whether or not I'd want to, I don't. I don't know. I think a lot of it has to do with just desire as well. Like, what interests a lot of people who build things is is the invention part, and um, other people just like the idea. Of they they turn their invention mindset to inventing the company itself at a larger scale. But I don't know.
0: Well, I'm just going to chime in with a question here. Mm-hmm. Ask you a question that I get asked all the quest, mm-hmm. time, which is, can you teach entrepreneurship? Do you think that the skills you have are ones or that some of them could have been taught
1: sure, I mean I think the only thing that can't be taught is really this the strong desire um, because to me entrepreneurship is just a combination of of, of some skills which most of which i didn 't have when I started and um, just intense desire. And the more you have the desire, the more your ability to <coughs> overcome the lack of skills or other obstacles. Uh, so I mean, being a good entrepreneur, I think, is, is being a good worker. I mean, it depends on, on what exactly you're doing, but being a good manager can be taught, I think. And um, certainly whatever field you're in, that knowledge or expertise to do something successful in that field can be taught. Great.
0: No, there's lots. Yep.
1: Um, Hi, my name is Sohail, and uh, you mentioned that the audio media has always been the one that has a third of opportunities, whereas the video and print media have been saturated. And although you gave a very good case as to why there is a high probability that audio media would be rising up, but at the same time, when we analyze the potential of any field, we should also be prepared for any possible setbacks that we might uh, encounter in terms of of accepting audio media, uh, what set, setbacks do you predict? Setbacks to adoption of audio is on a wide scale? Um, it could be that uh, there's not a really huge audience for, for spoken word audio, audio because people um, are either, it just doesn't fit into their, their lives, a lot of people's lives. I mean, um, that could be a setback, but um, there's, uh, when I, I think of the, the path that we're on now in, in enabling communication and personal expression, um, I think the biggest setback could be if it's too hard to do, um, which I think is one of the advantages of audio that can actually be really easy to do. Um, I think people have an insatiable and ubiquitous desire for communication and personal expression. And enabling, more ways you enable that, as long as it's easy, um, are going to be adopted in in ways that we can't really anticipate. I'm I'm sure there's other setbacks, like the servers don't scale and and stuff. But as far as the the trend in general, um, I'm pretty confident. But as I said, I'm always hallucinogenically optimistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you gain users? Do you advertising budget? And why do you what's the name? It looks like a type of So, how do you gain users? I think it depends a lot on what your product is. Um, I like the type of products that don't require a lot of marketing in themselves. And uh, we're very fortunate with Blogger, we had, were able to get millions of users without any proactive marketing. Uh, mostly it was it a was combination of word of mouth and press and word of blog, if you will, but we, are creating, we created a tool that let people talk to more people and they talked about that tool and there's a little Power By Blogger and it was you know, the definition I mean, it was the typical viral web thing. Um, Odeo will hopefully be that as well, so we're not planning for lots of marketing. Um, different types of, of companies, though, do need more proactive marketing and distribution deals and advertising. Advertising, I think, is a last resort unless you have millions and millions of dollars or if you're a direct response company. Image advertising, unless you're spending lots and lots of money, is generally a bad idea for a startup. And um, why we picked the name Odio? Most people like the name Odio, but um, we, we picked it at just... Brainstorming. Um, it's my favorite type of name because it's, it's unique. It doesn't mean anything. It's not, it's not generic. It's not, like, it's not like Audio Blogger, which we happen to own, but I didn't name that. Um, it's, it's, it doesn't mean something exactly, but it connotes the right thing. So it's like audio, it's like voice, um, and it's short, and uh, we're able to buy the domain. Great.
0: Yep, back there. Then you're next. Okay, one, two. So there's been a lot of activity recently, the last six months, 12 months, around podcasting. And I'm curious to see your views on the role of
1: podcasting, whether you see companies like iTunes and Yahoo's new recent launch of podcasting as more of an ecosystem or more as a competitive. I think it's not yet an ecosystem. Um, hopefully, it will be. Um, I think there's a really nice ecosystem in the blogging world, and most of the tools interact with each other, and by its nature, podcasting is pretty open, and there's not a lot of exclusive deals, and you can put your audio feed in iTunes, for example, and um, you can mix and match these things, but there's not enough diverse players to make an ecosystem. I think think there's lots more tools, and, and it just has to evolve a lot more. It's not rich enough. There's not a lot of uh, in the blogging world for instance you can plug lots of different things into your blog and you can uh, go as far as you want in terms of complexity and you can um, right now it's pretty generic and flat in the podcasting world but I think that's just because it's new uh, and people are but I don't think people are competing that much either I think Apple introduced lots of people to podcasting and they put this thing on their desktop and they didn't steal any customers for the most part they just put it in front of them and Yahoo will probably do the same thing. I mean, it's there's so many people out there, and the, those people, those companies are in front of so many people that until there's a hundred million people, or at least twenty million people listening to podcasts, there's not a lot of competing. Exactly, there's competing for mindshare, which is a different thing that um, that exists too at this level. And when we uh, early on, we were like one of the few podcasting companies that had any attention at all, and therefore we were getting lots of um, requests for um, partnerships, and we're getting lots of media, and we're still getting that, but now it's people talk about podcasting, then it's Apple before it's Odeo, obviously. So um, that matters, but it doesn't matter as much as the users.
0: Do you have a question? Yep.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how rights management around He held back a little bit by podcasting publishers because they, you know, it's unclear how the rights landscape looks to them but what's their use and what's not. You talk about sort of your thoughts on how that evolves and then also if um, Cody so sort of planning to sort of take a take a stance on that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah I'm not an expert on on the copyright issues especially as, as the the big music companies see them. Um, obviously, they're they're pretty protective of their content. Um, that is coming up in the podcasting world. Our stance right now is don't take anything that's not yours. There there should be some fair use, um, but we're not focusing on that use case exactly. We're we're not focusing on music in general because, um, like I was saying earlier, music is a lot more highly evolved. There's not I, I think there's really interesting music podcasts, and it's a great venue for a lot of independent artists, and, and eventually the bigger labels are going to get into it, just music on subscription or music selected by people I trust and just lands on my iPod is a really cool idea. Um, but I'm going to let other people fight those battles on the licensing front. And what I would love to do is you're in Odeo and you want to publish some music, and there's, you opt in to pay a fee if there is one, or we are able to provide some blanket license. Uh, But we're not focusing on that right now. Uh yeah the limits to what you can take in um, get that question a lot i think it's it's um, a couple of things are going to happen. I think a lot of podcasts are going to get shorter, at least the popular ones and there's still this idea that a podcast is a half hour long uh, and some of them will be and you'll if you have a half hour commute every day and it's like that's your morning radio show, and that's what you do, and maybe millions of people will, will listen to some of those. Um, but where, where I'm more intrigued is, is more on the, the communication side. So it's more, a more frequent, um, I got something that's a few minutes long, and I'm going to find the part of my day that it fits in, and it's going to be otherwise unused time. So it's not that I'm sitting in front of my computer, and I could be reading, because reading is a more efficient way to gather information. Um, at least if if it's kind of public information, it's not necessarily a more efficient way to hear something from from someone in my family or my girlfriend because there's a lot of information that is just that comes through the voice um, and just the idea of asynchronous audio is really convenient if I can get it at different times or when I can't read something or I'm driving, and there's a lot of time when you can't read so um it's taking advantage of that time that is enabling people to take in more information, not just saying, Well, I can only listen to a podcast a day that is interesting to me. I don't know if that answer made sense.
0: Yeah. Can I follow up on that question? Uh, um, one of the issues, you know, when you look at websites or you're, mm-hmm. you can scan them really quickly and sort mm-hmm. of see, gee, which ones of these are interesting, it's really hard mm-hmm. to scan audio. Mm-hmm. I mean, it takes a lot longer. And just as Companies like Google figured out ways to sort through mm-hmm. lots of volumes of websites and to give you things that they think are the most relevant. Mm-hmm. Is, is this, are the same sort of tools evolving for audio?
1: Oh, right. I think the, the tools are going to get a lot better. I mean, I think um, that I think the content's going to get better, and I think the tools are getting better. Um, and search is one of those tools, if you're looking for something specific. Um, but I think even getting more information about what you're listening to when you're listening to it, if you look at the iPod as a, as a device for consuming information-based content, isn't ideal right now because if the interface is designed for music. And if you are listening to music, especially your own music library, knowing the artist and the song, at most, is all you need to know. So there's very little information in there, and you very rarely fast-forward your music, and um, you can imagine an interface display for listening to information-based audio that is quite a bit different, that maybe allows you to see the different sections. And They're starting to do some of this with in iTunes and some other players where you can see, well, here are the chapters, but I can imagine that evolving a great deal. So you can see, well, at this point it's talking about exactly this, I'm just going to jump there and make it more linear um, in easier ways to, to delve into different parts of that and on top of that um, I think remixing and uh, allowing other people to add value or help select things uh, is going to evolve so instead of just subscribing to this show and it's a half hour every day I'd much rather subscribe to people's viewpoints sort of like I do in the blogging world I I still read mainstream media but I don't generally go to them first. I go to the people whose viewpoints and opinions I respect and are out there reading articles and other blogs and then I get their take and if I want to know more then I go on. Those tools don't exist yet in in podcasting, just the ability to maybe quote the relevant part of this half hour show and it's three minutes long. Um, and then someone I respect gives some commentary around that, could make it much, much more efficient to get what you want. And if these things are broken up into much smaller chunks, and I get the combination of 10 things that are three minutes long that are most relevant to me, as opposed to one 30-minute thing, I think that'll improve.
0: I know one of my pet peeves, I've, I've started uh, listening to a lot of books on my iPod. Mm-hmm. So when I go hiking, I'll download a book and I get mm-hmm. to listen to it. But often I want to highlight something. I want to put down yes. the corner. I want to be able to you know, cut a piece of it out and say, yes. gee, I want to remember that quote. But yes. it's impossible to do.
1: That's another big part of what I'm talking about in the, the evolution of, you can't do that on radio. Yeah. And we're still with this radio idea. Uh-huh. So the whole idea of interacting with the content in any way is very primitive right now. Um, so you can't do any of those things. You can't send them. You can't share something. You can't quote anything. You can't bookmark it. Um, in some cases, you can bookmark it, but you can't see what's coming up next. Right. Um, all these things are possible, but they just weren't built into the old paradigm, so I think we're not there yet.
0: Great. We'll look to you to do it. Who has more another question? other questions? Yep.
1: Um, Have you found that certain um, podcasts have kind of um, become more popular than others, and are more useful? And I was wondering, if so, um, what kind of qualities they may share? Um. Certainly, there are there are some that are tremendously more popular than most, and there's there's a there's a power law at play, like in most mediums. the qualities they share, I don't know. I haven't studied that too much. Um, it seems to be, in a lot of cases, they come from known entities with, with built-in audiences. So like This Week in Tech is one of the most popular ones, and it's from Leo Laporte, who had a popular show on tech TV, um, and Adam Curry, of course, and being one of the first. And um, But I think... One of the, the things I find, at least, is that they're highly listenable. I mean, some of the most popular ones are, are from people who are in media or have been in media and either in radio or TV and know how to make something listenable. And Tech TV is an hour long, or This Week in Tech, but you can hang out and listen to it. And it's not... Is some, some podcasts are very painful. And <laughs> uh, it's interesting because we all, you know, are learning to write as we grow up. And we're learning to speak, but not necessarily. It's a different thing when you sit down in front of a microphone. And it's a skill that needs to be developed that not tons of people have. And there aren't that many models for it either. So um, that's again why I'm very interested in the communication and personal expression aspect. Because if I'm leaving someone a voicemail or need to tell them something, I don't have any trouble talking. But if I'm supposed to sit down and monologue in front of a microphone, I'm very painful to listen to as well, uh, and that's probably a common, common uh, aspect. A lot of the more, most listenable ones and most popular ones are, are conversations. They're people talking rather than, than an individual sitting down and, and trying to talk.
0: You know, it's so interesting that we were just talking the other day in our office about in the early days of uh, voicemail or answering machines, mm-hmm. people got really nervous leaving messages. Mm-hmm. So you had to learn how to do that, too. Right. So this is a, a new tool that people actually have to learn how uh, to, to speak in a form that's appropriate for a podcast.
1: Absolutely. And there's probably a while there that people were really out of practice writing to, to messages to mm-hmm. someone else. I mean, be, between kind of the decline of letters and the rise of email... Uh, then that kind of had to be learned and you still have your your family member who sits down to write email like they're writing a letter uh-huh. and, and they're just not in the, the frame of that yet. Right.
0: There's a whole different etiquette that will evolve for this yeah, for this medium. A, exactly. Which is really interesting to think about. You yeah. know, what will that yeah. be? Yeah, I think
1: it's tremendously early and, uh-huh. and all these things are great questions because you start thinking about how uh, little it's evolved so far.
0: So, any other questions? Yeah, one to the back. Yeah, I was wondering,
1: Mhm. Sure. Um uh, so in, on the technical side it sounds like you're asking about mostly um, any uh so the experience in blogger was was a, a roller coaster. I mean, we got funding, we started in 99 and we're self-funded and raised a little bit of money in early 2000, actually in April 2000. Um, and everything was going great and we had lots of buzz and started building our team and had some great investors and we going to raise more money at the end of 2000, uh, which was not a good time for a consumer-facing internet company with no revenue model to, uh, to raise money. <laughs> so that didn 't work out, and uh, we, we fortunately didn 't raise a lot of money in the first place when we only, only raised a half million dollars, so we didn't we grew to a total of seven people and were able to scale down. It was very painful and terrible, and I had to lay off the the seven people, including myself um, and uh, but the advantage of that was I was able to keep going and I basically um, kept the thing alive myself, and uh, so 2001 was a very down year, and I was able to kind of bootstrap and get it going again, um, And but there were scaling problems the whole time. That was part of what made it really painful, is we had no money, and we had more and more users every day, so it's, it's a weird experience to have your product be more successful and your company just going down the drain, uh, and we did... Creative things like asked our users for money to buy servers, and we went and bought servers and they gave us money because they liked the service and uh and that saved us at one point um and it it scaling is was always probably our biggest problem on on the technical side um partially is because I wrote a lot of the code, and I don't know what I'm doing in that realm <laughs> um but as part of my principles of if, if you don't know how to do something, there's no reason not to do it because uh, then when all the, my programmers left, then when I had laid them off, I went into the server and learned how to administer Linux because there was no one else to do that. And Fortunately, there weren't a lot of hackers attacking me at that time. But um, it was hard. One thing, things I'm doing differently now is um, raised a lot more money. Uh, not sure if that's a good or a bad thing yet, but it's allowed us to scale a lot better, and we were not going to have... Basically, we were terribly underfunded the whole time uh, for what we were trying to do, and um, know a lot more about engineering enough to hire people who are good. Uh, so that helps. And we have yet to get to the really hard problems, though, for Odeo.
0: You know, it's so interesting. The way the question was asked, the assumption was that Blogger had grown really fast, And, uh, you know, obviously, internally, there was a very different thing going on than what the rest of the world saw. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I think we are just about out of time. And, oh, do we have time for one more question? Okay, one more question.
1: Um, how do you find find the small problem? Um, well, one thing that always annoyed me, I read a lot of books on how to start a company and so forth, and a lot of them give this, uh, this rule of find the problem and solve it, which I actually kind of said earlier, and I actually don't like that rule, because a lot of things aren't problems you're trying to solve. So blogger, in retrospect, we can say, we try to solve the problem of easily publishing little Bits of things to a website. Um, no one was having that problem when we started it. Um, and similarly, Walt Disney well, didn't set out to solve the problem of not enough animated mice. You know. <laughs> so some some companies go out to set a very small problem. Google's like it's impossible to find anything on the web. Let's solve that problem. But that's not uh, framing the question differently can help. Uh, and it's, it's easier to say, well, this is a problem. But um, some of the more imagined, more interesting things are things aren't problems. You just think they'd be cool. Um, and so, I think that's—it's hard to say how to do that. It's a—it's a matter of just. Uh, I have a guy who works for me, Biz Stone, who is just constantly all day long talking about, well, we should do this and we should do this. And he has one of these, or in the future, there's going to be you know light bulbs in your shoes or something. And once in a while, he has a great idea. So it's you know, <laughs> uh, kind of throwing a lot of stuff out there and saying, would I like that? Not would people like that, but would I like that, I think is the question to always ask.
0: So he to have lots of ideas. So lots of ideas, yes. Right.